Welcome to Creative FM, the Creative Leaders Podcast with Ivo Gabrovich, where Ivo speaks to designers, makers, and interesting green workers from across the world to hear their stories and discuss creativity. If you are looking for inspiration to boost your own creative business, this podcast is your own supersonic aircraft. So take your seats and enjoy the trip through the fascinating secrets of success of outstanding creatives. Bon voyage. Welcome to the first real episode of Creative FM, the brand new independent and free creative makers podcast. My name is Ivo Gabwich and in this podcast I speak to designers, makers and interesting brain workers from across the world to hear their stories and discuss creativity. I have provided more background information about Creative FM's intention as well as about myself in a special introduction episode that you can download on creative.fm or iTunes. In my premiere interview episode, I had the huge opportunity to talk to a well-known, uncompromising graphic designer. He's one of UK's best creatives, known mainly for his collaborations with superstars like Damien Hirst and David Bowie, but he and his team have so much more to offer. Last year, I visited Tokyo, where he has left several marks, for instance, the design for Roppongi Hills, one of Japan's largest property development projects. And this is just one random example of his awesome body of work. Another one is in the book I've just read that is designed by him and his team. It's called Bicycle Artisans and features the most unique bike makers of the world. A must-have if you are into bikes and design like I am. You can find some images and links on the website. For David Bowie, this designer designed several projects in the last 15 years, including the album artwork for Heathen, Reality, The Next Day and Blackstar. For the latter, he even received a Grammy Award for the Best Recording Package. And talking about awards, his contribution to graphic design received a long list of accolades, including a major dedicated exhibition at the Design Museum London. But not just graphic also his type design convinces. A very special recognition that needs to be mentioned is MoMA's acquisition of his typeface Mason. It is one of only 23 typefaces acquired for the museum's architecture and design collection. Before he started his own fund foundry, Virus, he had released Mason, among other style-defining and transiting type designs of the 90s, through the legendary Emigree Library. If you are a designer and haven't lived under a rock so far, you should know who I'm talking about. My guest in episode 1 is Jonathan Barnbrook. Although being seen as a rather serious person, Jonathan is yet a funny guy who just cares about life in general and of course about his profession. I had the pleasure to work with him a little bit and I really really enjoyed it. In the interview which was conducted in May 2017, we touched upon many of the topics mentioned before. Since we talked back then, he has started another interesting project that it's worth mentioning. Together with Enel Aiken, Jonathan has formed an electronic music duo under the alias Fragile Self. You can listen to their music on FragileSelf.com. I also recommend to visit his studio website Barnbrook.net, his personal site jonathanbarnbrook.com as well as his founder site 
virusfonts.com. If you like this podcast, please share it on the social networks. Also, I'd be more than happy to receive your rating and comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also simply drop me a line via my Twitter account, Gaprovich, or the podcast's website, creative.fm. Take care and keep exercising your creative muscles. Ground control to Major John. We are now ready for takeoff. Welcome to my podcast, Jonathan. Uh, it is truly a pleasure for me to have you as a guest here in the beautiful city of Berlin. Well, thank you. And I'm very happy to be in Berlin, the city which has incredible history. Some of it's influenced my work and influenced people I work with, like Bowie, you know. So it's absolutely great to be here. Nice. Uh, speaking about Berlin, uh, what do you think is the main difference between British graphic design and design from continental Europe, particularly Germany? <laughs> That's a very difficult question. Um, uh, I think for me, the difference in British graphic design, difference in German graphic design is that um, maybe you can see the parallels in, in music. You know, you get craft work in Germany, you wouldn't get craft work in, in Britain. There's a certain reinvention of history after the Second World War, not not just in music, but in design. And that's very much reflected in the work today, whereas I think British design is very much aware of, um, to, to a large extent, four or five hundred years of history of the type mm -hmm. designers of that time, of British heritage. Um, as not to say that German design doesn't acknowledge its history, but um, I think there was much more interest in going forward rather than looking back here mm -hmm. um, for the past 50 years or so. That's what's made it pretty unique okay i think so. and, and would you say uh, your own work has a particular british identity um i think it does i mean let's be clear i'm <laughs> i'm no lover of britain separating from the eu um but i think designers should be comfortable about where they come from and if you compare for instance the, the color palette i use It's definitely a London colour palette. You mm. couldn't imagine it being in California or something like that. That's not a grey mm -hmm. uh, place. And the typography that interested me it was always British type designers. And that, I, and that was because when I was at college, we were talking uh, late 80s, the work that was shown as being the most influential was American work. And I thought everybody should really be authentic to their background. So I reacted against that and looked at people like Eric Gill and Edward Johnston, mm -hmm. um, who did work that was very much of the psychological landscape of, of Britain, of acknowledging craft, but trying to do something that was both human, but had a, a touch of modernism, mm -hmm. of the modern influence in it. I think that's in my work mm -hmm. as well. I, I think I, I would agree. <laughs> good, that's good to know. <laughs> Uh, you claim that you can work in the area that you want to work in by only presenting projects in your portfolio of stuff you really like. 
Mm -hmm. And this way, usually the right clients get your attention. At, at least that's what I've what I've read. Yeah. And um, did you also attract uh, David Bowie's attention in this manner when he simply called you to ask you <laughs> to design his next album? Or how did this relationship start in the first place? Well, to answer answer the first part of that, I think I what I I worry about when I see students' work is that there's a lack of courage, of course, because they're they're young, they don't know how to define. Uh, the world as it were when they go out into it but uh, I think not that you have to be stupid in your portfolio but you have to be clear in your portfolio um, this is the work I want to do because people are quite unimaginative they don't tend to commission what they can't see mm -hmm. so if you have a portfolio full of stuff that you're not that into but think you think you'll get your job it will get you a job but it won't get you the job you want mm -hmm. so better to be courageous and show the work you want to do because there's room for everybody in design it's not like necessarily there is one way to be a graphic designer you can be a non-commercial designer you can be a commercial designer you can mix both you can work in music you can work in typeface design you can do an area you want to do but just make it clear what you want to do really. mm -hmm. and the second part of the question about Bowie I mean many pieces of work come about as coincidence but also in relation to people you meet so it really was, um, it wasn't a music project, it was a book project. And because I've done a lot of book designs and I'd worked with a, an artist that Dobo was a friend of, Damien Hurst. That's how the connection was made, yeah. really. Of course, it's a, <clears throat> a great honour and a great privilege. And you think maybe a mistake that David Bowie phoned you up and asks <laughs> you uh, uh, if, you'll, if you'll consider working with him. And he was extremely humble that way. And... Um, Uh, speaking on a pragmatic level, the best way to keep constantly working is to make sure people come back mm -hmm. to you, make it an enjoyable process. And I hope that first project, which is a book for his wife, Iman, mm -hmm. was an enjoyable process. And um, he came back. Um, and uh, I mean, I think for me, it was a very good example of someone who can actually get the best out of people. Mm -hmm. And make it a very pleasant experience. And I'm not saying that just because he's passed away and I'm looking mm. back sentiment in a sentimental way. Obviously, I, I miss his presence, but it was more that how do you engineer it to make someone at the, do their best creativity and take risks, but yet do it in a way that they don't realise that they're actually standing on top of a precipice and doing something quite dangerous. And he, I don't think he managed just to do it with me, but he managed to do it with everybody he worked with. Mm. I think the fundamental to that is actually being a decent human being, you know, actually realizing that other people have a life and you have to empathize with that life and then mm. uh, using the positive qualities of those people. So it was a very good learning experience in that way. Okay. And very different from what people expect because they expect a pop star. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, it's quite a different experience. So. Okay. So, and uh, one of the most discussed album covers of the last years was Bowie's The Next Day, of course, yeah. uh, where he used a square shape to obscure his face from the design on the legendary Heroes album from yes. 1977. Yeah. And so many dis discussions surrounded that album release that you even put an FAQ page on the website <laughs> to yes. answer the, the questions, right? Yeah. So, however, one question was left open, at least for me. Mm. I wonder whether those expected reactions were actually part of a bigger marketing plan and what role marketing generally plays for such a prestigious artist like him? Well, um, 
let's just say the record company weren't that pleased with the cover. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of engineering a marketing plan, no, there was there was none. Uh, the the deal was with Bowie is that basically gives them the the album and the package at the end of the project and they don't get much say in it and then it's adapted to the marketing so i think they were very nervous about it mm-hmm. um but of course they were quite delighted that people were discussing it um, i mean even i was nervous about it i wasn't sure because i emailed bowie just before uh we send the cover off to them and I said, are you sure about this? <laughs> because we'd worked on the idea for two or three months and I said, I'm sure this is not going to be misinterpreted. And he said, no, it, have courage with this idea. It's a, a good I- idea. And, uh, you know, he was right. And the good thing about it was that people started discussing design again. Mm-hmm. You know, of course they yeah. talked about a record cover, but actually they were talking about what a record cover means in the process of owning a record. Mm-hmm. Um, so for both of us, that was a really uh, mm. nice thing and of course when there was a lot of negative reaction mm-hmm. against it people were saying it took five minutes and and at first I thought this is not very fair but actually I took it all part of mm. the interest in the cover so no problem um, at all about that it's good to have the discussion yeah. I think. my personal opinion, opinion I'm, I'm also still not sure if it's good <laughs> or bad That's sometimes good. I think it's, it's really really good and the other day I think, uh, yeah, it was only five minutes. Right? <laughs> so, uh, but I think that's really, I, I totally agree to it. Well, it was, it's like Picasso says, you know, it take, takes 50 years to get to a certain Absolutely. point. No, 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 don't, no, yeah. no, uh, don't get me wrong. But really, I, I have the same doubts. I think that's mm-hmm. a natural thing if you're a creative person. Mm-hmm. Um, you question what you do. And I look mm-hmm. back on it, I think, was that good? And I, I and there's a very interesting thing when I was listening to the last album with David Bowie and he was sitting next to me I was listening to it for the first time and I could see him looking at my face because he, he wants people to any artist wants a person wants their work to be recognised or to be seen as a good creative piece and mm-hmm. you're still unsure even if you're David Bowie or uh, media mediocre little Jonathan Barnbrook it's uh, you want the work to be accepted so that mm-hmm. questioning is quite important <laughs> I think so. it's good to hear <laughs> definitely <laughs> I also wonder how did the design process evolve from the first uh, collaboration with him uh, uh, to to the last one, um, which was uh, the Black Star album. Um, for the first collaboration, it was not include the Amman book, but the the record covers mm-hmm. uh, specifically. I think there was a there's a hopefully a build up of trust where he knew what he wanted to get at, but he within that there's the freedom to surprise him. Um, and so it's a very intense process at the beginning you know listen to listen to an album um, sometimes the title of the album isn't decided and then talk to him about the atmosphere about it and not specifically about the meanings of certain songs because that's not what it's about it's about describing that intangible thing of emo- emotion in music I mean, nobody understands how music works mm-hmm. emotionally and to try and describe that visually as well makes no no sense, but you have to get to it. Mm-hmm. And it comes through non-direct questioning. It comes through understanding mm-hmm. someone's energy and their concerns. Um, and it's only when sometimes when you look back 10 or 15 years, you can see whether you, you solved it mm-hmm. or not. So um, the process is he lived in New York, I lived in London and there was a lot of back and forth emails. We'd 
there'd be certain key uh, moments of discussion which um, define the album. Like for the next day, um, he sent me a photograph of him forming in the 70s and he wanted to do mm-hmm. something with that photograph. And that started the trigger of thinking about how um, his image has been, or he's been the most, the artist's really most expectation on a new image each time and how to subvert, subvert that. And how to um, do something which defied people's expectation. Also, the album was about um, looking back a little, particularly on his time in Berlin. Mm-hmm. So that was the reason for the use of the heroes mm-hmm. um, cover. So there are lots of different factors. And it does take a time. I mean, talking again about an album cover taking five minutes to design, or anything taking five minutes to design. You have to have something in the back of your head for a number of, or it's good to have the luxury of having at least a, a couple of weeks mm-hmm. just to think about it because you're you're presenting a new language to the world that's what an album is by a major artist you know the world is different after albums released so you have to do something equally mm-hmm. different and appropriate so, so is um, the design proposal you you make uh, also uh, your personal or kind of a personal interpretation of, of how you appreciate or send the music uh, well you know I'm a designer so it has to be framed within very pragmatic terms in a brief so there's of course there's the emotional side of the music but there are other factors as well you know it has to work with technology like a, a typeface even so it has to be scalable it has to be used in the worst roughest media and the biggest most super HD media so you have to keep that in mind it has to be used on iTunes it has to be used on a billboard you know um, it has to be something that appeals to the audience mm-hmm. too so it's not a pure artistic interpretation of the music but it functions on a lot of different levels it has to be used in different formats as well as iTunes billboard you know you have to do a vinyl and a CD as well how does the cover translate to that mm-hmm. how can fans take part of that cover and make it their, their own these are all factors which go into a design before mm-hmm. you make a mark on a piece of paper and uh, you've, you've mentioned iTunes uh, is it mm-hmm. easier or, or more difficult to design album covers for a uh, thumbnaily world of Spotify iTunes versus a world of, of record stores uh, you know it's people complain when the CD came along because of the small format but I think it was more it was the horrible plastic box around it and there was no actual tactile quality other than that plastic box so I don't necessarily consider when designing album cover is it say iTunes in isolation has to work for everything so it's uh, I mean it may not be the answer you're looking for but it's it's a completely scalable system mm-hmm. uh, like a corporate identity in mm-hmm. a way but it has something about the spirit of the music in it so um, of course designing for a smaller format is difficult but it's interesting problem to solve in relation to solving it in with all the formats mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of nice stamp designs as well. You know, we have an amazing rich history of them and they're quite small formats. So I think yeah. we can do it. I think the problems are the parameters of having to say the artist's name and all this kind mm-hmm. of thing as well. Is there, is there any uh, particular musician left that you would love to design for? Um, I would like to work with Brian Eno, but I've never been asked. Uh, I mean, I would do work with another artist called John Fox, who's mm-hmm. as well as Bowie, who's my hero. So, but it took me 20 years to actually pluck up the courage to ask. So, how, how long did you try with Brian Eno? 
I haven't yet. <laughs> Hopefully you'll hear this to me. <laughs> Uh, I mean, th- there are a lot of artists I like to work with, but actually I think their design is fine and really good, like Björk, her stuff by M&M. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'd love to work with her, but what they do is a brilliant job, mm-hmm. and so just let them carry on doing it. Uh, the moment uh, they are getting worse, then you can chime in. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm quite happy with that relationship. And uh, Radiohead, of, of course. I mean, there are a lot of designers... I think the best way is for a designer to have a relationship with a musician, to know them, so the musician trusts them, to like the music. You can't, I don't like the idea of working with someone whose music you're not into because it will show in the, mm. the cover. We've, there's a few examples where we've done it and I've decided never again to work with an artist I'm not into. So. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a very good Berlin band called Easter, but again, they do their own mm-hmm. stuff. There's another, I really like Berlin electronic music. There's uh, November Novelette. They're another great band. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's usually smaller bands that people probably But haven't heard of. I hear there's plenty left. <laughs> there is. <laughs> so myself, being a, a, a client myself from time to time, mm. uh, I'm wondering what you would expect from me to add to a perfect designer-client relationship? That's a good question. I think, uh, although it's something that designers have to earn, is trust, you know, and also an understanding that design is an equal to art. And I don't mean that in an indulgent way of, hey, we just do what we like. I mean that there are all the cultural influences in a piece of graphic design, mm-hmm. as there are in a piece of art. And of course, day to day, I I occasionally have a moan about uh, clients, but actually being a graphic designer is quite a privileged position, I think. Um, so I, I tend to be, I mean, this to get the right clients as well, I think I would say, is that, um, you know, it goes back to having the right portfolio, but understanding that you are not the right designer for every client who approaches you mm-hmm. to make a, a relationship that's meaningful and lasts and does and creates good work. I think that's quite mm-hmm. important. So to pay on time as well. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> you have in the past been uh, known also for your political work. Yes. For example, projects like niresolution.org where you creatively responded to the political situation in Northern Ireland. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or the logo for Occupy London. The design yep. of the Olympics symbols, which presented your critical view on modern Olympics, yep. or last but not least, first things first, 2000 manifesto, which proposed to change in priorities with regards to co- commercial graphic design. Mm. Uh, you've also created open source work for political and social justice purposes. Yes. So, how much is your work as a political activist a driver for your regular work, as as well as your general creativity? Mm. Well, firstly, it frowns off a lot of potential clients because <laughs> uh, other designers, uh, I think sometimes are a little bit resentful. They think you're doing it just to be cool, to raise your profile. And honestly, it's not that because um, it does frighten a lot of people if you have strong points of view because generally graphic design doesn't, no, it doesn't deal with points of view, but uh, it tends to be a commercial basis um, for it. Um You know, I don't see anything as non-political. I don't know if that sounds strange, but consenting to be part of a market economy is political. Mm-hmm. So there's a political decision working for somebody. Um, 
things like the campaign for the next day and actually the covering over of the cover that comes from working with people like adbusters which is subvertising you take an existing already created commercial image and you subvert it in some way so that cover wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for um working in the political realm and the decision to release everything for black star as open source was absolutely from that background as well understanding that why protect something if you if there's no need to you know and actually you can make a lot of people happy by uh, releasing it so they go back and forth i mean what i haven't done recently is direct political work and that's that's partly because the northern ireland project was um was an evolution of the work from not just shouting you know ranting about um how terrible the current state of the world is but actually trying to offer something positive northern ireland and a few other projects talking about the good things that happened um in the world i think it's partly getting older but now i mean we're in a, a very dark situation but i'm still coming to terms with how to deal with it and what difference it will make if i do deal with it satirizing trump for instance is quite difficult because the satire doesn't match the reality that's the problem and i think the only people who've done it well are people like sunday night live rather than designers mm. who've taken it into a completely comedic other level mm. um yeah it's i really have to uh, think about how to deal with it <laughs> <laughs> I think we we all need to do. Yeah. Well, it, it feels like now that we we are in the the next millennium. Maybe you know, the past seventeen years we were hanging on from the last one, mm-hmm. but now definitely Trump, Brexit, things that are going on in uh, say Turkey, that kind of thing. There's we're in a different era. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So. I I'm I, I'm sad. I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> But that doesn't mean to say there's going to be bad art and design because of it. I mean, there is still hope for, not that we should escape from the world, mm-hmm. but if you look at the key moments of political turmoil, we've got some great art and design. <laughs> but isn't this the perfect time for uh, more designers that, that share their clear political attitude? Uh, I think it's a different time. Again, a lot of people are trying to think about how they help and maybe shouting isn't necessarily one of them it's actually turning away from the centralized idea of government and becoming more insular which is quite a sad thing whether it's um just not caring about the idea of society and surviving on your own or just moving away completely from the the industrial (laughs) model and working in a smaller community (laughs) somewhere i really i mean the the issues which go up to make our society now are so Yeah, are so complex. It's very difficult to know how to uh, deal with it. But I, as well as things like Trump and uh, um, Brexit, there are a lot of people who have actually, you know, the world is polarizing, which is actually quite dangerous. You do get a lot of people who are even more in in the right wing area. But I think there's a rise of humanism, which is a reaction against that, and uh, maybe the world will be forever polarized or for the next thousand years i don't know um and the two sides can't reconcile each other but at least there's hope um with a counter movement i think mm-hmm. so we'll see <laughs> we'll see 
You work for and with clients from all over the world, including yeah. Japan, uh, for instance, for the Murray Arts Center. Yes. How come you are so busy with clients so far away? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, hopefully, it's because we're creative. That's why. But also, I think, as we start this conversation with, you know, my work is very British. It's a very certain way of looking at the world. And um, uh, I think that's what, people are interested in not that it's british but it's a it's a very certain way of solving problems and that i think that appeals a lot to the japanese audience i'm not quite sure why there's always been a relationship between japanese graphic design and british i think from the beginning of um certainly i can remember from this huge interest in neville Brody, mm -hmm. uh and also people like tomato as well um I'm not sure whether it's our links with popular culture because we're very interested in music and design mm -hmm. as well and how all those things link, link together possibly. Yeah. Often we're brought in to give an international focus actually mm -hmm. rather than a local focus to understand that um, the base of what we do is that thing of vernacular design that you use the elements around you but also to understand that there is a worldwide audience mm -hmm. as well for something like a museum. We have that kind of experience <laughs> on a pragmatic level. Uh, recently, I, I myself have the pleasure to work as well with a Japanese team. Mm. Uh, I wonder what advice you can you can give me for that. That's very interesting. I mean, the, there are lots of cliches about um, Japanese people, but I think you should love love culture, and if you love culture, then there's no problem with. Mm. Uh, loving Japan because it is such an elegantly mis not mysterious but complex culture all different levels of politeness and of philosophy it's just amazing and it's an incredible place to work and the people are absolutely lovely I, I'm trying to think of if there's one negative I, I suppose it's um, it's very difficult to find the actual person who make decision sometimes uh But uh, you're actually afforded great privilege being a foreigner in Japan, I think. Um, so I can't think of anything negative, really, about working with it. Just it's a different culture. And I mean, you don't even have to understand the culture. It's just uh, go full, fully into loving it. <laughs> Same with any culture. I mean, I love German culture. So. I can think of a lot of negative things about German culture. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can think of not, like, not that's because you're German. I can think of lots of negative things about British culture, but uh, you know, <laughs> let's not start about that. <laughs> let's talk about type design instead. Okay. Uh, yeah. Without diminishing, of course, legendary Mason, Execute, Priori, or Tourette typefaces that I all love, mm. uh, I personally consider your last typeface doctrine and I think it's your last if I'm not totally uh, wrong. Yes. yes. Uh, so from, from 2013 uh, that you designed together with Jonathan Abbott and Julian Moncada. Yeah. Uh, I consider this the best one. Oh, thank you. Uh, as it is the, from my perspective, the most versatile one. Right. Uh, doctrine, for those who don't know it, uh, successfully tries to fill a niche between humanist and geometric sans yes. serif typefaces. And in addition to that, it's Uh, to its slightly strict appearance, it impresses with a whole, whole bunch of fantastic alternates, ligatures, uh, a true italic as well as an awesome stencil version. Oh, so, uh, Doctrine 
however, is maybe your least zeitgeisty type for mm. you so far. Yeah. Why? Uh, that was where ideologically we were at that point. That's, you know, every typeface is an expression of a, a point of view. And for many, many years, I'd done what would be considered as quite decorative work. Now, now decorative is a, a contentious point, but um, it felt like it was in, it was allied to working on the next day, Cover Day, where I wanted to strip everything away. I was actually not I, but we were living in a world where we were sorted by images all the time. And it felt like, especially in music, you had to give people a space. So the font that was designed and used for that first, the next day, should be without fuss, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to get in the way of that space. And, you know, you, I think it's good to love the things you hate. Now, I couldn't imagine... When I was younger, I would never use lowercase and I would never use sans serif. It would always be serif uppercase for everything, uh, which not very legible, but it was a, a statement against what I thought was a prevalent ideology at the time. But to re-question that, that was the point of doctrine. There's never any thought about what would sell. It's first and foremost what's philosophically right for the that moment in time. So, yeah, that's the reason for doctrine. Yeah, it's a... I would agree it's the less, least barbaric-y font in terms of visual form, but actually it's the most honest one at this point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so uh, you set up your own foundry, Virus, uh, in 1997 after you published your first designs uh, with Emigre. Mm-hmm. And 20 years later, congratulations on your anniversary, <laughs> by the way. Yes, thanks. Is it 20 years? Wow. Okay. Right. <laughs> would you still consider to start your own foundry? And what are your key learnings from from running your own front label? Uh, I think I it's very healthy. Like again, the analogy of music, there are lots of bands doing their own stuff, making their own music, and just putting it out. And I think it's possible we're a font foundry. I think what's changed since 1997 is that the level of expertise is much greater now, and you have to do fonts with a huge extended character set. A number of weights, which actually takes a considerable amount of investment of money and time. But it's still possible to have a font which is, you know, fashionable for a while and, uh, you know, be successful with it. So I wouldn't discourage anybody from, from doing it. I don't think it's an easy job to draw a typeface. You know, I had no training. I think that shows, uh, sometimes in the, in the early applications of the fonts, but, um, Yeah, it should be a you-can-do kind of philosophy mm-hmm. with that. Um, what have I learned? Uh, it's always a privilege to be part of the visual landscape mm-hmm. of the world. That's always one of the best things. Um, I can't say I've made that much money out of font design, but what I've had is the pleasure of, when I go around the world, of seeing a font used of my own, which I didn't expect, in a place I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a great pleasure which is no comfort comfort to students who've got no money <laughs> well yeah. it's at least not easy no it's not not easy but it's still it still is a very direct process like making music obviously there is even in music there's the production kind of thing so um it still tends to rely on a few individuals for mm. font design so i think it's still a very creative area And we're entering a, an age where, again, technology is being completely shaken up with font formats and the way people 
would like to use fonts in many digital media. So it's, there's a lot of experimental possibilities mm. as well as technical ones. Yeah. So. Is there is there any particular typeface that you used uh, most often in your graphic design career? Not necessarily in your own. Uh, well, Johnston is <laughs> my uh, favourite font because uh, it's ridiculous. I have a favourite colour because each font is appropriate. But the parameters of that, as I understand it, of a modern font, but actually also very much fit into the architectural language of the time, but also had a calligraphic basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also for something that was a, an amazing feat of technology, you know, the, the London Underground. So mm-hmm. that to me is my favourite font. I haven't used it enough. Is there, is there any a recent new typeface release that really struck a, a chord with you? Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, the people in my studio tend to pick up on the fonts more than me, and, and there are there are a number of ones we're using there, which are all very interesting, but I can't remember them. <laughs> <laughs> so, I wish I could. How do you keep yourself up to date with all the developments within the type industry? Uh, well. I do and I don't know. I mean, I think it's important to take on relevant stuff that really does affect the industry, but I don't assiduously check font blocks or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think seeing a typeface being used and just noticing something is usually the best way. But there are a few people in the studio who are just absolutely insistent on, uh, on seeing what the new typefaces are. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your studio. Mm. Uh, you're running it uh, since 1990 uh, yep. as Barnbrook Design. Now it's only called Barnbrook. Yes. Um, yep. How does the setup of your studio in terms of stuff looks like? How many designers, uh, account managers, etc. work for you? Uh, well, we have one business person and there's, I can't remember, it's about six or seven designers. Mm-hmm. We tend to lose, I mean, lose like uh, they go missing or something. No, we just, it, 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 It's generally about that many. Um, most are full-time, um, mm-hmm. one or two are freelance. And I try, obviously nobody's the perfect boss, but I try and make it not about the Barnbrook philosophy, but about doing good work. That's mm-hmm. more important. So if someone wanted to do handle something in a different way, I wouldn't say that's not the way we'd do it. That's never, ever been a conversation in, in 27 years. It's, is it good or not? Mm-hmm. You know, of course you're influenced by your own philosophy, but, um, so, so in, a, in a corporate world, you would say re- reporting. So do they all report to you or has this organized? Um, there are an, a number of senior designers and, but the, the, the level is fairly, um, flat. Mm-hmm. Of course, I am the company, but um, there is never someone reports to someone else and says what someone else has done mm-hmm. or what they haven't done in a project. It's we, everybody discusses. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I tried to treat them the way I'd like to be treating the job, which is given independence and responsibility. And I'm sure some of that could be quite different. And I say, well, you sort it out when they ask me a question, but it's the best way, best way to learn. And as for the kind of designers it tends to be a combination of uh, someone who's really good at typography but someone who can really pick on a job and get the best out of it but also a really actually nice person <laughs> that's incredibly important so that's what you're looking at when hiring someone yes okay uh, not much <laughs> just to be perfect <laughs> <laughs> so 
Is there any new design talent rising in the UK that we should have an eye on? Maybe a new Jonathan Barber? Uh, I don't know. I think um, each time has its own uh, design. I don't tend to look at graphics, to be honest. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are good design designers from all around the world that it's just a level of enthusiasm and personality um that's a difficult question to ask because i don't even know what i am myself so But then let's <laughs> talk about yourself okay um how how do you know what the next steps on your career path should be is it always obvious where to go next or do you proactively decide on on your professional future Uh, I don't think about career. I just think about maybe it's a, the, the wrong word, but you know what I mean. No, but well, career to me suggests that there is a there is a, a plan. <laughs> Which there is. Um, it's more a combination, of course, of what work people want you to do, but also how you feel inside your your you know spiritually how you feel. So um, you know, music has always been. Uh, quite central to everything I do so I think now it's getting the time maybe to work more in that area of music and visuals together rather than doing doing other people's stuff doing it myself mm -hmm. but let's let's see how it um, goes and that is not a career move because nobody's waiting for any music from me or any visuals from me uh, along with it but it's more about um, what you feel at the age of 50 what you feel you have left in your life that you need mm -hmm. to do Uh, and so to move somewhere outside graphic design, express things in a uh, hopefully equally creative way, but a different way is more important than, say, making a company bigger or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, uh, my, one of my main worries through all that time is not becoming too large a company mm -hmm. because it means that the, there is a sort of social strata that's put in place, hierarchy that's put in place, and I don't want to have that. Mm -hmm. We all listen to the same music in the studio, that kind of thing, still. And that's important. And this works? <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Having said there's no hierarchy, I do get a veto of if I can't stand it and it's turned <laughs> off. But then, even then, I'll, I'll really try hard not to say it because I know they want to listen to it. <laughs> so. Funny. Yeah. Well, what is the, the one thing that interests you most at the moment? Um... Well, there, there are so many things. I mean, it, we do live in an incredibly interesting time. And I can't, couldn't have imagined the political state of the world now, even five years ago. It's incredible. So to be alive and to observe how design and wider culture is absorbing that and to look back at, say, a time in Germany, Germany in the 1930s, Britain... Um, you know, around the industrial revolution and see how people interpreted those drastic changes going on and how it's going to happen now. Because you don't need big budgets to do good work. You know, you don't need big corporations to do good work. You know, interesting work is always a few individuals responding honestly to the world. And it doesn't matter whether it's painting or design or music. It's that authenticity and how we will authentically express this world around us now I think it's the important thing okay thank you again right thank you thank you thank you creative crew please prepare for landing 
Thank you for listening to Creative FM. Please keep your seatbelts fastened while we taxi to the gate. Feel free to leave your feedback under creative.fm, twitter.com forward slash Gabrovich, or simply via rating on iTunes or the podcast app of your choice.